Good morning. How are you? That was really bad. Good morning. How are you? Much better. Good to see you today. Today is a good day. Amen. Amen. We are uh, in week four of our series on the book of Revelation, and we're on this tour together of looking at these seven churches. At, at, at the same time, we are uh, seeing the, the seven secrets of growth and change in our own lives. And so seven ways that God can impact my life, impact your life, and make a real uh, difference. But let me just take a moment to kind of go back and uh, review a little bit of where we have been. Uh, remember last week, week two, or no, not last week, a couple of weeks ago, week two, we looked at the church of Ephesus uh, and, and, and what Jesus has to say to uh, the busy church. Last week, we saw the church of Smyrna. And uh, they were the suffering church. And this week, we're going to look at the church of Pergamum. Uh, and, and historically, it was a great religious center. Ephesus was the political center. Uh, Smyrna, the commercial center. And, and then Pergamum uh, was a great religious uh, center. And so early in History, it, it was obscure, uh, this city, not very well known. Uh, there are evidences uh, of the fact that it was uh, occupied during the Stone and Bronze Ages, uh, but prior to Alexander the Great, uh, really it was no more than like a castle up on, on top of this hill. And so as you can see um, on our map uh, of Pergamum, uh, is about 70 uh, miles uh, north of uh, Smyrna. It's about 18 miles from the sea. Um, things that are interesting about this city, uh, Satan's throne was there. Uh, there's this altar that was uh, on a foundation of about 125 feet by 115 feet, over 50 feet high. Um, the people there uh, just had a lot of struggles. And those struggles resulted... Uh, and, and a lot of confusion in the church. And so Jesus reminds us uh, as he talks to this church uh, that, that sometimes our doubts grow uh, out of our relationships. And so he tells us how important relationships are when it comes to knowing and living the truth. And so Jesus' concern for the church at Ephesus is that they left their first love. Jesus' concern for a Pergamum was that they had left the truth. And because they had left the truth, uh, there was a great danger right in front of them, not from like the books that they were reading and not from the thoughts that they were thinking, but from the relationships that they were allowing in their lives. And so as you know, John is writing all of this on the island of, of uh, Patmos or recording all of this on the island of Patmos. And Jesus reveals these letters to the seven churches. And, and, and as we have said before, these seven churches are in current Turkey, um, which was near where, where he was. And yet uh, Jesus has these separate messages uh, for each one of them. So Revelations 2, 
um, verses 12 through 17 is where we're going to be. Go ahead and take your Bibles out. Turn there. If you don't have uh, a Bible, go ahead and grab one in the rack in front of you and, and turn to chapter 2. So, so how do you clear up the, the confusion? When, when, when you're not sure about the truth, when you're not certain of the direction to go, when you are confused about how true the Bible is or you're confused on how true all of this stuff about God really is or, or maybe you're just confused on how to act as a, a Christian, a believer in the real world in which we live and work. And so uh, today we're going to see what Jesus has to say about all of these confusions. Let's just go ahead and read the passage this morning and lay the foundation. Revelation 2, 12 through 17 says this. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who, who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teach to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And therefore repent, and if not, I will come to you soon, and I will wage war against them with the sword of my mouth. And he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden man, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So what do you do when you're confused about the, the truth? Well, I think there are four things. Go ahead and take your note sheets out of your program and you can follow along with me as we go over how we clear up the confusion. And number one is we have to respect the authority of God's word, right? It's the first thing that he says to this church, respect the authority of my word. So, so twice in the passage, he talks about the sword in his mouth. All right, it's kind of gross. Have you ever seen those guys that take swords and like throw them all the way down their throat, right? It always like kind of like creeps me out a little bit, right? And and this is actually a powerful picture in, in Bible times. It gives us the idea that, that the sword comes out of his mouth over and over again and how the word of God acts in our lives. And so remember that at the beginning of the book, we see the same thing in, in chapter 1, verse 16. It says, in his right hand, he held the seven stars, right hand, and coming out of his mouth was uh, a sharp double-edged sword. Right, his face was uh, like like the sun shining in all its brilliance, and so this sharp sword uh, of God's word, uh, and and there's a couple of clear verses in Scripture about how the sword works in our lives, like Ephesians six seventeen. Accept God's salvation as your helmet. Take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Right, and in this passage, he's talking about like battle. 
Like we have to have this battle in the world or you battle against Satan. And he's saying that in the battle you have this sword. You can swing the sword of the word of God. And, and it'll be very effective in defending you in your faith. Right? It, it will, in effect, defend you from the attacks uh, from Satan. And the Bible talks about using the sword uh, of the word uh, against Satan. But that's not the only place that, that it talks about using the sword and how God uses that in our lives. Writer of Hebrews in chapter 4 uh, verse 12 get, gets kind of personal with it. He says, for the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any uh, double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing soul and spirit, the joints and the marrow. It, it judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Like I could have stopped at the Ephesians passage, right? Because now we got to look at ourselves. Right, he's talking about us. He's not talking here about Satan or other people out there now. He's talking about God's word and how it acts on us. Right, right. It punctures deep into the core of who we are and it goes straight to our motives. It goes right to the heart. Right, it has the power to sort out our motives in our lives and nothing else in our life has the power to do that. Except for the word of God. When Jesus comes to this church and it's struggling with being confused about the truth and we're going to see in a moment how confused they were and he's reminding them if you really want to stand on the truth you got to have a standard, right? So, so the truth is God's word and without a standard it gets kind of confusing. As of the time that I wrote the message, uh, there were 91 days, 8 hours, 21 minutes, and 56 seconds until the NFL season opener. All right? <laughs> and you're like, how does he know that, right? There actually is a place where you can go that can sit down. But, but, but what if, if you watch... Football at all, you have seen this play where the running back is fighting his way to the goal line, right? And he stretches out to get the ball across the goal line for a touchdown, right? But what if there was no goal line, right? What what if the field just kind of gradually kind of blends into the end zone and there was no actual line there? Right? It would be up to everybody's opinion if it was a touchdown or not. Right? Would that be confusing? Well, like maybe we should like pull the players and see what they think. Right? Touchdown. Uh, what do you think? Or, or maybe we should let the fans that are in the stadium decide. Right? I mean, talk about confusing. And I think that's exactly what happens in our culture today, doesn't it? Right? We, we allow these polls to determine the standard of truth. Right? Those that yell the loudest get their way because everybody else doesn't want to like upset the apple cart. And the reality is, is that when you have a clear standard in God's word, it doesn't feel oppressive, right? It doesn't feel like a bunch of rules. It feels like what? The goal line. And there are many times in the Bible it says, if I step over this line, I'm going to be in big trouble, right? Like, I'm glad the Bible tells me that. I'd like to know that. 
right? If I step over this line, it's going to hurt and maybe even hurt other people that, that, that I love. I'm definitely going to hurt God, right? I'm glad that God gives us that line. There are other lines too, like if you step over the line of faith or the line of trust, right? You're going to enjoy this peace that passes all understanding, right? You'll enjoy this sense of joy in your life that that will be overwhelming. And I get it. There are some gray areas, right? But don't let that make you think that there are not some incredible standards where God says, Here's how you should live. And if you live this way, guess what? It's going to clear up a lot of the confusion. So so if you're here this morning, you're saying, you know, I'm a little confused. I would ask you to ask God to help you learn to trust in his word, the Bible. Like ask him to help you learn to trust it more than, than anything else that you trust in. Ask him to help you learn to trust in him where the Holy Spirit comes into your life, lives inside of you, that kind of trust. Right? Because that's how you clear up confusion. Confused about a decision in life? Go to the word of God. Can Confused about a truth that, that's troubling? Go to the word of God. Right, it clears up the confusion. All right, a second way to clear up the confusion is to recognize the danger of a lie. Look at verse 13. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name. You do not deny my faith in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. And then he says this in verse 14. Drop down to verse 14, but I have a few things against you he says right so he tells them all the good stuff about them you held fast in my name you didn't deny the faith but then he says you know what i got some stuff i need to talk to you about so so he talks to them in verse 14 and and he talks to them about the lies that have come into their hearts and it's an incredible thing how this church took a stand for truth Right, And it did so in the center of persecution. It was a very difficult place to be. And yet they stood for truth. And yet at this point they're starting to fall for a lie. Right? Warren Wiersbe says this about the church of Pergamon. He said Satan had not been able to destroy them by coming as a roaring lion. But he was making inroads as a uh, deceiving serpent. Right? Doesn't that happen in our lives? Like, like the outward attacks where Satan you know, comes and attacks you and people are arguing with you about your faith and, and maybe you're getting a little persecution, get a little pushback for, for the stuff you believe in. And we, we can take a stand against that stuff, right? That is out in the open and we take a stand against that, but it's the little lies that sometimes get to us, right? That's what's happening to these guys. Things like the fact that they live where Satan's throne is. He, he talks about the fact that they are listening to the teaching of Balaam. And he talks about this group of people called Nicolotians. So, so when he talks about Satan's throne, it, it's a warning to all of us about the popular lie, right? This tells us how bad this city was. And, and, and there are a lot of opinions on this. Like what is Satan's throne? And one possibility of Satan's throne refers to the God of Zeus, 
who, who said to have rulership on the ledge above the city, like you could actually look up there and there was a seat where he was and many people think that that was the throne that he was talking about. We, we talked a little bit about this last week. Many people uh, think that it could have been the Roman government where they were constantly asking people to take a pinch of incense and go to the temple and offer and as they did that they would have to say what caesar is lord and then some people think it could have been like outside the city there was a temple of healing where people would go and they would ask the healing god to heal them and the sign of this god was a serpent and many people think that this serpent and the sign of the serpent was a part of the temple worship that it could have been that and really, it doesn't matter which one it, it is. They all point to the same thing. They, they, they all point to the struggle of what is popular. Like everybody's worshiping Caesar. Why don't the Christians do that? Right? Everybody is rejoicing in this great city and had all these great temples to, to Greek gods. And, and why don't the Christians go there? Everybody wanted to get healed at the temple outside of the city. And why wouldn't the Christians go to do the same thing? Right? One of the greatest lies that we face in life is, why don't you just fit in, Christian? I'll tell you why. Because we have a faith in Jesus Christ, and we know from the get-go that we don't, what? Fit in. Right? We, we know that, 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 that our home is not of this world. But that we have a home in heaven. And we're not citizens of this world. And so the popular lie was followed up with another lie, and it comes from the Balaamites. I'm not sure if that's a word, but I'm going with it this morning, right? It warns us of the pleasure lie, right? Great story in the Old Testament, story of Balaam and Balak, right? Balaam was this prophet, and he was hired by the king of Moab, Balak, to curse the Israelites, Right, so, so, so Balak saw how big the Israelites had become and, and, and he thought the Israelites were gonna destroy them and so one day he hires this dude to take care of this, uh, potential problem. And so Balaam being a prophet tried to curse the Israelites and, and so they paid him to do that and, and all that would come out of his mouth was, was a, a blessing and it like happens Four or five times you can read about it in Numbers 22 to 25. And, and the king would get mad and all Balaam could say was, Oh God, bless the Israelites. Right? And it just kept happening. And then we see in the New Testament the, the sin of Balaam. And even though he's a prophet and he couldn't curse the Israelites, even though he wanted to, he he, he had to say what God put in his mind. He did, however, have the conversation with king uh the king of moab and this is what he said to him he said since i can't curse them he said do this here here's the idea he he said send some good looking women from your country to dance in front of the israelites and then they're going to be enticed and they're going to become involved uh with them both sexually and relationally and when they do that they'll get involved with your idols and then God's going to get mad he's not going to put up with that and then he will punish them and he'll solve your problem for you right guess what plan works 
right? It's called the sin of pleasure. The, the Israelites fall for it, hook, line, and sinker. And in Numbers 25, it says over 20,000 people of Israel were killed because they worshiped at the temples of the false gods. Right? They hurt their country, their family, and, and probably the hearts of many other people. And do you ever hear about that today? Right? Well, like, go ahead and indulge yourself. Who's going to know? What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Right? God, and, and, and God will still love you. He'll still forgive you. And God is telling us, you know what? Watch out. Watch out. Because Satan may not get you with a direct attack. So he's going to come through the back door. And one of the back doors is the popular lie. And one of the back doors is the pleasure lie. And then he talks about another group, the Nicolaitans. Who, who had kind of the same teaching going on as Balaam. They're closely tied to one another. And in this group of people, they were tied into a leader. Someone who was leading other people into a lie. Right? It's called the personality-centered lie. And there were times when we let ourselves become so involved with a leader that they actually ruin your life, right? Because leaders have a huge impact on your life. And in this case, people were listening to the wrong leader and he was heading them, he was leading them in the wrong direction. And the amazing thing about all three of these lies is that they warn us that these lies make their way into our life through relationships, Right? That's how they get there. Whether it's the people of Pergamum and the relationships that they have with the Roman citizens, or whether it's Balaam and his advice to make sure that some women were sent down so, so relationships can be built, or whether it's through a relationship with a leader. However it happens, the lie can make its way into your life. And the number one way it does that is through relationships. That's why the Bible tells us to be so careful about the relationships that you have, especially with those that call themselves to be believers, right? Because that's when sometimes we let our guard down and we listen to people call themselves believers, and then they what? They lead you astray. And people that tell us lies always sprinkle a little bit of truth into that. And the question is, is are you and I going to let those lies make their way into our minds? Or are we going to recognize the incredible danger in a lie? All right, point three. One of the ways we recognize the danger in a lie is we repent of the sin of encouraging false teaching. And you're probably thinking, well, I don't need to do that, right? I don't have to worry about that one. Well, let me break this down. Let me unpack it for you for a moment. Talk about what it means to encourage false teaching. Look at 1 Timothy 6 verses 4 and 5 this morning. This person is full of pride and understands nothing, but is sick with love for arguing and fighting about words. And this brings jealousy and fighting and speaking against others, evil mistrust and constant quarrels from those who have evil minds and have lost the truth. And they think that serving God is a way to get rich. Based on that verse, the motivations for false teaching is pride and greed. The Bible talks about the love of money and oftentimes greed is one of the driving forces but behind false teaching. It also says that they're sick with a love for arguing, right? There are some people that just love to argue. 
right? Right. It meets some emotional need in their life. And when you understand the motivations of false teaching, it helps us to understand what Jesus says in verse 16 when he says to the church that it's been faithful, that has loved him and trust him. He says to him, what? Repent. Repent because you are encouraging false teaching. It helps us understand what Titus is talking about in Titus 3 verses 9 and 10. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because they're, these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once, warn them a second time after that, have nothing to do with them. Pretty clear, isn't it? Well, so what are we supposed to do? One, we don't argue with people, right? We avoid that. And then two, if there's a divisive person, and he's talking about Christians here, by the way, right? They, they, these are verses about how Christians relate to Christians. If there's a divisive person in, in our church, you have a divisive person in a life group, and, and I'm here to tell you, we've had them before. It gives us clear instruction Warn them once, a second time, and then what? Have nothing to do with them. And some of you are like, yep, sounds good to me. There's other of you that are here today, and you're going, that's really harsh. Right? That, that's like unloving. You know, when you argue with a divisive person, you become their enabler. And by arguing with them, you make them feel important. You keep them going. You give them energy to keep up that false teaching. That's why the Bible gives us clear advice here. Warn them a couple of times and then cut off the relationship. All right, number four, clear up the confusion. Rejoice in your relationship with Christ. Right, it was a constant tradition of the Jews that the Ark of the Covenant, that they had tables of stone and Aaron's rod and the holy anointing oil, that a pot of manna where the, that was hidden by the king and put into the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. Right, it's pretty evident that the stuff in the Holy of Holies is a representation of Christ. And so when we look at this hidden manna, it is a picture of Jesus, right? It is a picture of the fact that Jesus is the bread of life. It's a picture that Jesus fulfills the needs in our lives that nobody else can. And then it talks about this white stone. And the white stone in Revelation is something we really don't know what it means, right? I'm just going to be up front with you this morning. And the reason for that is because there are so many possibilities of what it could mean. Like right? it was used for so many things in that day. Uh, let me give you a few of the possibilities, right? Like a white stone could be a ticket to a banquet, right? He just got to, done talking uh, about manna. And it could be like an RSVP kind of thing. It could be a sign of friendship. It could be a sign of acquittal in a court of law. And Jesus may have one of these meanings in mind. But at the very least, we know that it has to do with an assurance of a, a blessing. 
And so whatever it means, the important thing about the white stone is not the stone, but what's written on it. Look at verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers, uh, I will uh, give him, uh, or I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone. And then it says, with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So, so the key here is the name written on the stone. Anybody here like, have like a pet name for your spouse, you know, like Boo Boo or, or, you know, what, what Boo Bear or, you know, whatever that might be. Not saying that I use those today. Okay. So don't email me. Um, <laughs> you know, usually it's a name that I just like woke everybody up right there. That was nice. Um, usually it is a name that nobody else knows, right? It's just between the two of you. And so I want you to imagine this morning, right? Jesus having this intimate name that nobody knows about. And it's such a different picture of heaven, isn't it? Because we picture heaven as this corporate worship of God all together for all eternity where everyone is at like this worship fest. And the Bible does teach that for sure. We will praise him for all eternity together, no doubt about that. But we also do heaven individually. Right? And in heaven, we don't give up the individual personal relationship with Jesus that we have now. Right? It's a part of heaven that we really can look forward to. And Jesus is telling the church at Pergamum how false teaching can steal from our lives. And at the end of the passage, at the end of this letter, he says, what? Just hold on. I've got some hidden manna for you. Right, I've got some fulfillment more than you can even imagine. I've got this white stone with a hidden name. I've got this intimate relationship with you far more than you could ever think. Just imagine when we say no to the temptation and the lies that are out there. When we say no to the pleasures of this world, how much more it's going to make the internal pleasures of heaven that much richer. I mean, when we say no to the bread and water that Satan offers on this earth and he tells us, look how good this is. It makes the banquet that we're going to share with Jesus for all eternity that much more richer. Because here on earth, we're building the capacity to enjoy heaven forever. And so Jesus is saying, I know there's a lot of enticements, but just hold on. Just hold on. On. And in Pergamum, Caesar worship was a daily thing. It wasn't like just once a year you were challenged to say Caesar is Lord. It was every day. The Christian in Pergamum might be walking down the street, right? And somebody might come up to him and just kind of usher them into a temple and they were given this pinch of incense and they were pressured and putting it on the altar and saying that Caesar is Lord. Right? What, what if that happened to us? I mean, think about this for a second. Right? You're just doing your own thing. You got your family. You got going to work, right? You got your kids' soccer game or recital or graduation. And all of a sudden, somebody like just kind of pushes you into this temple. It, it would be a serious temptation just to like mumble, Jesus, Caesar's Lord. Right? 
to just get it over with. It doesn't hurt. Just get it over with. I don't really mean this. Like I'll cross my fingers when I say it. Right? Temptation is great. And Jesus is writing to this church and he says, watch out for the lies. Watch out for the compromise. That decision that turns you around the corner into a different direction. And you go down that road for a long period of time until you repent. Today, as we rejoice in what God's doing in our lives as a church, what he's doing here at New Creation Fellowship, let us not forget to rejoice in the fact that Jesus is the bread of life. That, That we one day will have this ongoing intimate relationship with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word today. God, my prayer for our church as we live each and every day is that we would respect the authority of the word of God. God, I pray that that would be our source of practice for living. God, I also pray that we would recognize and understand the lies of this world and what it has to offer. Father, may we be a people that continually repents of our sin. And then, Father, can we rejoice? Can can we rejoice in our relationship with you that one day we will spend eternity with you? Praising you, worshiping you, having intimate conversation with you. What a day that will be. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.